Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, our video producer and reporter Tim Leonard has a story about job retraining in the state, an initiative created to help people transitioning to new careers, especially if they've lost their jobs. After that, reporter Sean Galanka comes on the show to talk about crime numbers and what to watch for as candidates running for office use that information in their campaigns. At the end of the show, we are once again joined by writer Janice Oberding and her husband Bill to talk about ghost hunting and supernatural encounters in the state as we approach Halloween. The pandemic ravaged the job market, leaving tens of thousands without work and on unemployment or fighting with the unemployment system to get those benefits. But more than a year and a half later, the United States is facing a labor shortage. That's true in Nevada as well. There are job openings in many industries and not enough interested candidates to fill them. Some workers simply don't want to return while others can't get their jobs back. The shifting labor landscape has reinvigorated the state's effort around job retraining. Tim Leonard and Michelle Rendells reported on the story and Tim's got more for us now. The loss of 50,000 jobs whether that's to automation or that's to um, industries that are no longer here or businesses that are no longer in, in, in operation here in our state or um, people moving out of the state or w- any number of things that are associated with that. Um, that's definitely something that's on the front of our minds. Caleb Cage is the Vice Chancellor for Workforce Development for the Nevada System of Higher Education. Coming from the state's COVID response team last year, his new focus is aligning the system's retraining efforts with the volatile post-pandemic labor market and individuals shifting preferences about career choice. I think we have no control in that process over the individual decisions. I think we have control over um, what we offer, how we meet the moment. Our responsibility is to make sure that we are flexible, and innovative and can make sure that when somebody has made that decision that there are opportunities that are available to them through the public higher education system in Nevada. For some people, that means leaving their previous career behind to pursue certificate programs at a community college in a trade like welding. I was an executive chef at the Beacon Bar and Grill in Lake Tahoe, executive chef of uh, Park Prime Steakhouse and uh, Hard Rock Hotel. Wrote menus, food costed, um, pretty much did everything, trained employees. Joe Baker went to culinary school and never planned on leaving his career as a chef. And then COVID came along and um, shut it all down everybody went to their parents and left you know the restaurant so i lost all the training and all the people that i had trained and it just shut down the whole restaurant once you have nobody to cook it it destroyed the restaurant that i was in from the bottom up a place that was doing fifty thousand dollars a day to zero overnight when restaurants started to reopen he felt the new regulations were too onerous And then coming back into the restaurants, there was just too many restrictions, too many hoops to jump through, OSHA in California, um, mandates for masks, mandates for distance. I already took all this in culinary school, so it's like science changed. 
in 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 the world i feel like it, it everything changed and it didn't just make sense to me anymore so i chose welding where i'm kind of my own employer our community college system is set up uh, for what we call the non-traditional learner cage says these institutions will play a big role in retraining older students who might be coming from other careers. You know, Truckee Meadows, Western Nevada, Great Basin, College of Southern Nevada, this is their expertise, right? This is what they do and have been doing for decades now. Providing opportunities for workers who have a family, have day jobs, or have, you know, only limited opportunities to pursue certificates. Um, I think being able to provide asynchronous training and education where people can go in, take training or receive education on their schedule, I think is going to be a really important part of that. I think making sure that there is um, plenty of outreach and plenty of awareness of the opportunities that are available to them is going to be key. The counselors here are super helpful if you go into the main office and just sit down with them. They'll walk you through the scholarships and they'll even tell you other scholarships you might be missing and uh, to, to get enough money. Like, my, this whole thing's paid for and I have $35 left over in the scholarship money. So out of pocket, nothing for me. And, um, and I'm changing careers, like I said. Uh, my culinary school was $54,000, so <laughs> I feel like that was kind of a, <laughs> a waste of money now. I, I didn't want to leave my career. Um, like I said, COVID kind of forced me down that path. I, I, I enjoy cooking, I still kind of do. Nevada leads the nation in unemployment at 7.7%, compared to the national average of 5.2%. While that is much lower than the pandemic high of nearly 30%, Nevada's recovery has been slower than other states. Cage believes that workforce training needs to align with efforts to diversify the state's economy. I'm a native Nevada, and I believe uh, an awful lot in the, the grit and determination of this state. And I don't think that there's anything that could stop us from doing something like that in the long term. And, and I think it's really critical for us to keep working towards it. Anthony Simmons worked a number of different jobs before finding his calling as a truck driver. But in 2017, he suffered a back injury while working in his trailer that required multiple surgeries and years of therapy. Afterward, he was given a choice between a cash settlement or vocational rehab. It is a difficult decision. I was never a great student. I'm dyslexic and, you know, I've got some other, uh, you know, issues in that area with learning disabilities and stuff like that. I had a choice. Basically, you can take a payout or you can get voc rehab for two years. It's very scary. And being a big guy, people would think that, you know, you, you know, he doesn't have any fear and all that. Dude, I'm telling you, it, it's scary. And it was a hard decision for me to make. And uh, even to this day, it's still, you know, like, wow, how am I going to get all this done this week? You know, somehow I manage it, you know, along with everything else that, you know, you have to adult. I'm going to be 47 in a couple of weeks. And I'm in college with a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds. I feel like there's a positive outcome as long as I put the work in, which that's what's required with anything. As long as I put the work in and put the focus in um, and try not to stress, it's going to be great, you know, and the future is bright. Simmons has started working towards a degree in landscape architecture and hopes to use the skills he is learning to teach people. 
Along with Baker, who we heard from earlier, Simmons represents a growing subset of higher education students who are changing careers in their 40s and 50s. They're taking advantage of programs that incentivize training for in-demand skills. Every day I get to come into the office and work on these strategic efforts, right? These, these things that I think have the potential to transform the way workforce development, training, education, higher education in the state of Nevada are delivered. My oldest is seven, my youngest is two. They're gonna be participants in this system. I hope my daughter goes and gets a welding degree from WNC while she's there for uh, dual enrollment in high school. Say learn a trade because the, we need welders, we need plumbers, we need electricians, and they're, they're far and few between right now. And um, I, I have friends that would take on five plumbers right now if they could, and same with a lot of the other businesses. To read more about unemployment, the pandemic recovery, or anything else related to this, check out the NevadaIndependent.com, and we'll have more stories on job retraining in the future as well. This story was reported and produced by Tim Leonard and also reported by Michelle Rendells. It was edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. There was recently a report that showed murder rates in the U.S. were on the rise, but the details state-to-state are a little more nuanced than that. While some types of crime are on the rise, according to reporting from Nevada, others are not. Actually, Nevada is seeing a decline in crime overall. I'm joined today by reporter Sean Galanka, who has been diving into the numbers surrounding crime rates in Nevada. Sean, thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Joey. Yeah, yeah. So let's just start off by talking about those crime rates. What are we looking at when we're talking about broad strokes crime in Nevada? Yeah, so if you look at really just the broad numbers, statewide numbers for violent crime, property crime, they've been trending down for for a while now. Basically, since we had these really high highs in the mid-90s, they've been going down. But, you know, as as I I spoke with different criminologists and and people who work in, in law enforcement or close to law enforcement, you really can't look at crime at the state level because it's so much of a a local phenomenon. You might see a a rise in robberies in Henderson and a decline in robberies in Reno, and maybe the decline in Reno outweighs the rise in Henderson. So it looks like there's an overall decline in robberies, but really we're seeing more robberies in a specific place, and, and that's concerning for police, of course. Yeah, and and also one thing that your story mentions that uh, kind of dives into these numbers is the like violent crime specifically. What is violent crime compared to some you know non-violent crime? Yeah, so with this story, pretty much all of the data is sourced through Nevada Crime Online, which is run by the Department of Public Safety, and so they define violent crime with these four main categories, which one is murder and non-negligent manslaughter, and the other three rape, robbery, and aggravated assaults. And property crime, um, you know, those don't involve violence upon another person. That can include burglaries, motor vehicle theft, larcenies, and arson. Are we seeing an overall decline in, in, in violent crime? Yeah, so overall, we, we have been seeing a decline in violent crime really for the past several years. And of course, because most crime happens in urban areas, it happens where the population is most dense. We see those declines concentrated in Las Vegas. We see it in in Clark County as a whole. In 2020, there were some select jurisdictions like 
the, the jurisdiction of Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, where murders rose, aggravated assaults rose over the previous year. But because of those other categories of violent crime, robberies and rapes declining, we did see an overall decline in, in violent crime, despite some select measures of violence increasing. And, and murder rate is really the one that people generally focus on because of the, the community impact that it has relative to other crimes. At a national level, we've seen that kind of slow down the rise in murders, but in, in Clark County and Las Vegas specifically, we're seeing the murder rate escalate even more from 2020 to 2021 after it did from 2019. But it's important to remember that these numbers are still pretty similar to what we saw a few years ago. So through the first seven or eight months of 2021 in Las Vegas, we're seeing a similar number of murders compared to 2016, 2017, just a few years ago. Why, why are we talking about this now? What's, why, why is this a topic of conversation? Is it because we have an election coming up? Um, is it because this report came out? Yeah, I mean, I think the discussions have been happening for a while now. The murder rate is rising, and that's obviously going to draw attention because murder is bad. But obviously, the, the political campaigns put an extra focus on this. We've seen candidates placing blame at a single politician or a single policy for a rise in the murder rate or for a rise in crime. Or, or we've seen parties attacking a specific candidate for, for the rising homicide rate. And really, it's, it's more nuanced than that. You can't blame a single politician. You can't blame a single policy on a change in crime because there are really so many factors that go into it. And so it's important to, to lay out what the truth is and how these rates are changing as we get into campaign season where there may be a lot of oversimplified claims made about the crime rates. So obviously we have an election coming up and a very common topic for politicians to poke at each other with are crime rates. A lot of times we'll see political campaign ads. What are they saying are the crime rates right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really a mix. Some some things can be bent sort of out, out of shape in terms of the context. For example, Nevada Democratic Victory, the, the Washoe County branch of the state party, was pr pretty much attacking Joe Lombardo for, for the raising homicide rates in Las Vegas. And not all of that comes down to Lombardo. Of course, he is in charge of Las Vegas Metro PD, but there's only so much that one person can do. But I think it depends on candidate to, to candidate. Joe Lombardo, I think he was very candid at a, at a recent Hispanics in Politics breakfast in, in Las Vegas. He talked about the specific changes in the property crime rate and violent crime rate. He outlined how because there's a, been a bit of an uptick in property crime in 2021 compared to 2020, we're seeing an overall increase in crime, even though violent crime is down from last year. Whereas for example, Dean Heller at an event announcing his, his campaign, I believe he, he said that in, in Governor Steve Sisolak's one term in office, Nevadans are more likely to be a victim of a violent crime, but the rates of pretty much every type of violent crime have decreased in, in Sisolak's one term. So Nevadans aren't more likely to become a victim of violent crime in that time. And we've just seen some erroneous claims, I think with some specific advertisements They've used footage of, of riots about uh, police brutality during last summer. And that footage is what we're seeing every day. Those were very specific instances of, of protests and riots last summer. It's not what, what the picture of crime is like every day in, in Nevada. So, Sean, can you tell me, are there reasons that we see these changes happening? Yeah, and like I said before, it's, it's difficult to separate all of those reasons out. I spoke with Ernesto Lopez, who he's a research specialist with the Council on Criminal Justice, and, and he basically told me it's, it's impossible to pick out one of those specific reasons. He compared it to picking out a specific ingredient in a soup, and, and really, whether it be 
the the protests last summer or the number of guns in a given area it's or or how police are responding to crime that is happening there are really so many different factors that affect crime rates that it's impossible to nail it down on on one specific things because those are factors they affect each other they intertwine and and it has an ultimate effect on on crime going up or down but even certain economic conditions like unemployment being high might lead to more crime is there a time of year that you see crime go up or down? And we're talking about instead of year to year, we're talking about within a year. Yeah, so summer is pretty much always the time where you see crime at its peak, violent crime especially. I think in, in Nevada, we might see that spread a little bit more into May and September and October because of, of just the seasonality that we have here and then down in southern Nevada especially. But generally, summer is where we see the most crime. And then to wrap up, too, can we talk a little bit about more granularly about some of the counties when looking at, at crime rates, whether that's violent crime or property crime, which is something else that you mentioned? We are seeing some of those changes. Like, let's talk about Clark County, and then we can go to maybe Washoe County and maybe point out a couple other outliers. Yeah, so I think Clark County and Washoe County are really the two main places to focus on because with a lot of the rural counties, the, the amount of crime is so low that year-to-year changes are are more difficult to analyze because those low frequency events, there might be a statistical blip where a county sees two murders one year and five murders the next year. And really that's not a, a massive increase, but it seems like a, a 250% jump. And it really just depends on the way that you look at those changes in crime. Now, if we're looking specifically at, at Clark County, we've seen murders really jump up through the first part of this year compared to the last couple years We've already, just from January through July, there were more than 100 murders in Clark County. And the last time there were more than 100 murders in Clark County from January to July, it was 2016. In terms of of aggravated assaults, we saw a pretty large jump last year, but they're kind of falling back down to to their 2019, 2017 levels within Las Vegas specifically. And so that's kind of one of the reasons we're seeing this sustained decline in violent crime in southern Nevada is because even after that one-year jump in assaults, those are going back down along with robberies and rapes. And on, on, on the topic of rapes specifically, I think Reno and Henderson is in, are, are areas where we've seen those two kind of buck the trend. We've seen rapes rising in the past few years in those couple jurisdictions. And, and Henderson particularly so far through the first part of 21, 2021 is facing a, a pretty protracted wave of, of violence through the first eight or so months of the year. They're seeing more assaults. They're seeing more murders. Even generally, they're seeing less of a decline in robberies and rapes that other parts of, of Clark County are seeing. All right, Sean. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me today and kind of breaking down some of those crime numbers. If you want to check out Sean's story uh, on our website, he has a bunch of graphics breaking down everything. Um, from violent crime to gun violence to uh, to property damage to rapes, robberies, aggravated assaults. So make sure to check that out. So Sean, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Joey. So last week we had Janice Oberding on. She's an author who writes about ghost stories around Nevada. Her husband Bill also joined her and they're back again this week to talk more about Janice's writing process and to tell a few more ghost stories as well. So let's hear from them. Hi, I'm Janice Oberding. I'm a writer. I usually write about ghosts, the paranormal, true crime, and history. My name is Bill Oberding. I'm Janice's husband. I do the photography. 
I get to travel with her now that I'm retired, so we go all over the country and we have a lot of fun. Is there anything unique about Nevada in terms of the ghost stories that are here compared to the ghost stories that are maybe in the South or anywhere else in the United States? Well, they're not as old. Our ghost stories aren't nearly as old. Some in the South and in the Eastern states go back 200, 300 years, and ours are newer, like maybe a maybe 150 years. So that's one unique thing, and I think ours are more colorful. Why do you think it's important to tell these stories? I think it's to preserve history, to get an interest. You know, a lot of people come to Nevada, especially Virginia City, for the ghost, just for the ghost. And I think that's good for tourism. And then I think it's good for people maybe to explore. Is it possible that there are ghosts? I mean, even if you're uh, anti-totally, it's good for people. Do people come to you with ghost stories? Is that generally like how you discover these? Yes, it is. People will come and say, oh, you should check this out. This is really haunted or this happened to me or my friend. Yes, very often. So once you decide to write a book, let's use the Goldfield book, for example, right? I know that the Goldfield Motel or the hotel is considered a relatively haunted place. So did you go to Goldfield or did you just call people in the area? How did you how did you start that book? I've been going to spending time in the Goldfield Hotel probably over 20 years. My friend was the caretaker there, Virginia Ridgeway. And we got invited 20 years ago to do a show called Scariest Places. We did that, and it piqued our interest, and we continued researching. I would go to Goldfield and research and uh, write. What's been your favorite book to write? That's hard to say. I always say it's the one I'm working on. But actually, the one that was uh, that stayed with me the most probably was the book about Floyd Loveless, the youngest person ever executed in Nevada. It's called The Boy Nevada Killed. Did you grow up believing in ghosts? When you talk to people about ghosts, I think a lot of people don't believe in ghosts. A lot of people do believe in ghosts. Where do you lie on that? Does it bother you when people say they don't believe in ghosts? No, it doesn't, Joey, not at all. I've grown up believing in ghosts. My mother doesn't believe. My dad did, but I've always believed and I when people say oh, you're wrong you're full of it or something I just kind of laugh at it because generally if somebody's going to have an experience that's unexplained it's going to be somebody who doesn't believe what was your first uh, paranormal experience I was a child at elementary school and I was playing in, in the playground all of a sudden everything just got kind of fuzzy and it's like an aroma and, and I've seen since that time people say that's associated with like a, a good spirit or something. And I heard a voice say, I'm angel, but I don't know. Um, that was probably my first. When you, when you approach writing about a new town, what, what is your first move? What is your first, when you approach a ghost story, what's the first thing that you think to do? Usually Bill and I will go to the museum or the historical society and we'll start talking to people. And most people people are receptive because with tourism, especially with COVID and everything, we all like tourism. It's good for our our towns. And so most people are very receptive. Occasionally you'll get somebody who's not really receptive. They're receptive to having their town written about, but not their ghost. But usually Bill's the one, he's the one that kind of smooth talks people. Janice has a very interesting philosophy. And what she does, she will go there first and interview people, get the stories, and find out what they think happened and the, the history and also the, the ghost. 
then afterwards, Janice will come back and do the research and see if there's anything in history that correlates with the stories that these people are, are telling. In other words, if they say, okay, there was 10, they, they hear little kids that are crying or whatever in a house, Janice will go back and then find out, wow, back in you know 1907, there was a fire in this house and there were kids that perished. And so that would maybe give it some credibility, possibly. But Janice doesn't actually, in her stories, say if it's haunted or not. She tells the story, and then you make up your mind whether it's haunted or not. And I think that's really a good, wholesome philosophy. Do you think that people that don't necessarily believe in the paranormal have something to gain from your books or the stories that are in them? I do, and I have friends who don't believe in the paranormal necessarily but like my books because we also include like there's a lot of history and I think history is important on its own level and uh, the stories the people like say um, for instance Julia Bellette up in Virginia City now her ghost is supposedly up there she was an arresting person to research her life her death the man who was hanged for killing her but there's some question now if he actually was her killer. So the characters, the people I write about, even if you don't believe their ghost are here or ghosts are involved with them, still the history of that person can be fascinating too. Do you feel like you converted Bill uh, to a more of a believer? Not really. I mean, I think he, he loves history like I do and he enjoys the stories and visiting the places and researching, but I don't think he believes necessarily anymore. Well, I go in with an open mind, and I do, because there's things that are very unexplainable at this point, and uh, I take that small percentage and I'd say, there's a possibility, maybe there is, and there's no way to prove or disprove it. Ghosts are really interesting to me because it, it revolves around death, right? That's yeah. the whole mm-hmm. thing. Is mm-hmm. When someone passes away, their, their spirit moves on, and, mm-hmm. and they, they haunt somewhere, or they exist somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and What is your relationship with, with death? Well, I think death, birth and death are the two universal experiences we'll all have. We don't, not, we don't share the same exper- life experiences and many other things, but the two universal, we're going to be born and we're going to die. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, I think, you know, nobody wants to die, but I think once you accept that that's part of the natural order of things and you know that energy can't, you, you can't get rid of energy, and even uh, Thomas Edison believed in something after death he did research in that there is something more and then also I I believe in reincarnation too and and some people say well that doesn't go with ghosts but it does go with ghosts to my thinking (laughs) but yeah so I believe that it's just part of just moving on a new existence do you consider yourself a a religious person or more of a spiritual person or or do you think of yourself as an atheist? No, I don't. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a religious person. I would have to say spiritual person. I asked Janice if she had any more ghost stories to tell before we wrapped up, and she had this one about the Donner Party, and if you don't know who they are, they're a group of uh, settlers that were moving west during the 1800s to settle in California, and uh, they got trapped in the Sierra Nevadas, and many of them perished, and so... You know, Janice thought that maybe some of their ghosts were still lingering around the area. 
any other stories that really stick out to you that you'd like to tell before we wrap up? One, it took okay. place in Truckee, um, between Truckee and Reno. And this has been about 15 years ago. My friend and I went down to Donner State Park, the story of the Donners. And it was about 8 o'clock at night, and we're walking the trail, and we're looking for ghosts. The tip was anybody here, would they like to talk to us, that type of thing. And, okay, we're in the car driving back and I see the Burger King and I'm kind of being sarcastic about the Donners and well I don't know why they were so upset there was a Burger King right over there and fr- and it was only her and me she was driving and in the back seat I heard my voice say I don't know why they were so upset There's a, and I looked at her I said you're not a ventriloquist are you she says no I said nobody's in the car with us no I mean it was weird so she said, whatever it is, when we, get, when we get back to your house, I'll send it on its way. So we got back to my house, and I said, yeah, please do send it on its way. So she did a little ritual, and I haven't been bothered by it since. But that was very, it was very eerie I'm, to hear your own voice, your own words repeated back to you like that. All right, and again, that was Janice and Bill Oberding. Janice has an event at the National Automobile Museum here in Reno on October 30th. Well, she'll be doing a seance, so if you want to check that out, make sure to look into that. And also, you can find her books in most Nevada bookstores or online. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Tim Leonard, Sean Galanka, Janice Oberding, and Bill Oberding for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank Jackie Valley, who not only helped us edit this very podcast, but also helped edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more. If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, mayonnaise, secrets, Halloween costume suggestions, or whatever else you can think of at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.